John chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. John 15, 1 through 5. Next week is Easter, my favorite Sunday of the year. It's going to be exciting. We are next week going to wrap up our, our study of the seven I am statements in John. And the reason we're studying these is we need to remember who Jesus is. I think in, in these days, we lose sight of that. We have all these ideas we sort of project onto Jesus that we want him to be instead of looking at the man he really was, the, the man and God who he was and is and what he expects from us today and what he can do for us. Back in 2007, September 18th, there was a professor of computer science named Dr. Randy Pausch at the uh, Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He taught a lecture entitled Really Achieving Your Childhood Dreams that night on the campus in front of about 400 colleagues and students. And it was subsequently adapted into book form where it became a bestseller. In fact, it spent four solid years on the New York Times bestseller list. It was translated into 48 languages and traveled all around the world. It, it's been uploaded to YouTube where when I was preparing this message a few weeks ago, it, it had been seen 20 million times. Now, I think it's safe to say that although thousands of teachers and professors give talks every day of the week, very few of those are remembered even a couple of hours after they're done. I mean, how many, how many lectures do you remember from your school days, those of you who are out of school now? How many, of you, how many students remember lectures they heard this week, right? How many of you remember any sermons you heard growing up? Don't answer that. <laughs> so what was it that made this message, this talk, so memorable? Well, Randy Pausch was a beloved figure on Carnegie Mellon's campus. He was also in his mid-40s, in the prime of life, in very good shape physically, except for a pancreatic tumor that he had just found out was incurable, and he knew he had less than a year to live. And so he called this his last lecture. In fact, that was the name of the book, or if you want to look it up online, that's how you'll find it. And so when someone very intelligent, highly respected, beloved, when they say, I've got one shot one more chance to tell you what I know about living before I'm gone, it tends to get people's attention. Jesus had that same opportunity. In John chapters 13 through 17, he gives his version of the last lecture, you might say. It's, we call it the farewell discourse of Jesus. It's interesting, the first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they get to this point, Jesus' last night before the crucifixion, they, they portray Jesus handing out the elements that we call the Lord's Supper, right? The, the bread and the wine that made up part of the Passover feast. John recounts that same event, except he doesn't talk about the meal at all. He just talks about, here's what Jesus said to us. While we were sitting around eating our roasted lamb and our bitter herbs and all the other elements of that feast. And that farewell discourse is Jesus's last words before they would see him arrested and tortured and killed. And so you have to think, he's going to say some important things in these last moments. Now, it's an interesting uh, feature of speaking. These days, we pretty much expect a speaker or a writer to build on his points until they build to a kind of a crescendo. That's what preaching does, right? You kind of bring it home at the end with your most important point. For instance, in Randy Pausch's last lecture, he said, you know, his most important point was, it's not so much whether you achieve your dreams, it's how you live along the way. But in ancient times, often speakers and writers would do it very differently. They would, they would build up to a peak in the very middle of their message. 
And so uh, they would say their most important thing in the middle, and then on their way back down the mountain, so to speak, they would repeat the points they made on the way up so that at the end, you'd look back and you'd remember everything that was said, but most of all, that middle point. And I can't prove that's what Jesus is doing here. But I find it interesting that if you narrow down the very middle of the farewell discourse, it's this passage I'm about to show you, which may just be the main point Jesus wanted to say to his disciples before he was gone. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is talking here about success or as we would say, a life that is meaningful and full and fulfilling and joyful, a life where you feel like you actually made an impact on the world for good, where your life was worth living. Isn't that what we all want? Whether you're five years old or 95 years old, you're looking for quality of life. You're looking for life that matters. And it's interesting, in the ancient world and still in many countries of the world today, success is seen in terms of honor. If you bring honor to your family, to your tribe, your city, your nation, then you've lived a successful life. In those cultures, for instance, if you're a woman and you manage to raise many children up to adulthood and they're men of honor, they're men of courage, they're women of virtue, then you have lived a successful life. If you're a a man and you get to the point where you're the old guy who sits by the city gates and everyone who walks by bows their head before you and those who have questions or disputes, they come to you and ask your advice because you've proven yourself to be a man of wisdom and righteousness, then you've been successful. And it all boils down to doing what's expected of you. You always obeyed your mom and dad. You, you married the person they told you to marry. You, you raised your kids in a way that honored them. You, you were always in the synagogue every, every Sabbath day. You never took the Lord's name in vain. You kept to the Torah. You, you didn't steal someone else's spouse. You always did the things that were expected of you. That's success in those kinds of cultures. In American culture, it's safe to say things are a little different. Not that we don't love our families, But when we think of success, who do we put on magazine covers and on TV screens? Who do we make movies out of? We make movies out of people we consider the most successful of all, and those are the people who follow their dreams. It's not so much about honoring others in our culture. It's about following your own dream. It's very individualistic. So for us, a success story is the young woman who, had, you know, she's raised by parents who have certain expectations of her. You're, you're going to be an attorney. You're going to be a business person. You're going to be an accountant. And she says, no, I want to go into singing. I want to I be a world-famous singer. And for years, everyone doubts her. She, she goes, she sings in this series of dive bars and, and sleazy places. And then one day, Uh, an agent or a producer hears her and signs her to a contract, and now she's this worldwide famous superstar. That's success in our eyes. Or it's the young man who grows up in a family where no one has ever even graduated from high school, and yet he manages to earn a full-ride scholarship to an Ivy League school. And by the time he's graduated, he has this brilliant idea for a business that makes him a multimillionaire by the time he's 30. Now that, to us, is success. It's instead of fulfilling people's expectations, it's shattering their expectations and taking, not re- refusing to take no for an answer to accomplish your dreams. 
Now, what Jesus says is success is not found in honoring others or in achieving your dreams. It's found in bearing fruit. And how do you do that? Jesus answers two questions here. The first is, what is real success and how do we achieve it? So that's what we're going to talk about with the rest of our time. What is real success? Number one, he says, success is impossible apart from me, apart from Jesus. Remember I said last week, if you were here last week, Jesus was the most humble person who ever lived, but he wasn't modest. Imagine if I were to say this church would be nothing without me. Well, that would be the dumbest thing I could say because this church was here 125 years before I got here and will be here long after I'm dead and gone unless the Lord comes back first. But Jesus has the right, in fact, he is right to say, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, that is the worst kind of propaganda unless it's true. Members of other religious faiths would look at that or, or atheists would look at that and say, how arrogant to say that I can't accomplish anything without you. And even a lot of Christians who hear that statement say, well, I don't understand, Jesus. I, I know about my favorite movie star, my favorite singer, uh, my favorite athlete, this, this CEO who's made billions of dollars, who I look up to, this rising politician that I voted for last November. They don't show any evidence of following Jesus. And you look at the Look at the success they've achieved. And Jesus would say, yeah, that's like a cut flower. Anybody ever bring you a bouquet of flowers and you put it on your desk or in your, in your kitchen and it's beautiful? It just brights up the whole, brightens up the whole room. But how long does it last? If you're lucky, maybe a week. You know, the most beautiful supermodel in the world someday is going to get old. She's going to get wrinkles. She's going to gain weight. She's not going to be on magazine covers anymore. The best athlete you know, the, the NBA MVP, the, the Super Bowl winning quarterback, their elbow is going to get arthritis. Their knees are going to grind to a halt. They're going to develop a spare tire around their midsection. It happens to all of us. The CEO who makes billions of dollars gets busted by the SEC or somebody takes him over in a, in a hostile takeover. The politician gets primaried. It happens. Our earthly success is fleeting. It lasts but an instant. And even if you're lucky enough, fortunate enough to hold on to that, some vestige of earthly success until the day you die, you still have to stand before God in judgment. Are you ready for that? All the money in the world, the best lawyer you can employ, all the success, good looks, none of that will prepare you to stand in the presence of absolute righteousness. And even if you're from one of those honor-shame cultures and you perfectly fulfill the expectations of your family and friends and culture, God has very different expectations. Are you ready to stand before him? Real success is impossible apart from Jesus and what he can bring you. You know, we live in a society that has basically infiltrated the church and has led us to create this weird hybrid Christianity where it's like, okay, if I pray and go to church and have the right kind of faith, God will make my dreams come true. And that's not what the scriptures teach. In fact, I think one of the keys to success in life is getting to the point where you're able to say to Jesus, okay, Lord, you know I have dreams and you know I have desires. Whether you're, whether you're in your post-retirement years and your dreams are as simple as I just want to be living near my grandkids and, and be able to fish and play golf, that may be your dream. Or you may be a young person who says, I'm going to change the world. 
But the key to success, I believe, is saying to the Lord, what's more important to me than any of those things is that I live out the purpose you created me for. So don't let any of that stuff, Lord, get in the way of me being the man or the woman you created me to be and fulfilling those things you had in mind for me since the very beginning. Look up Ephesians 2.10. God had a plan for you before you were born. Success is impossible apart from him. Secondly, success is about character. It's not about accomplishment. It's not what you do. It's who you become that defines whether you lived a good life or not. In fact, when Jesus talks about bearing fruit, that's a common theme in the New Testament. And if you look it up, every time fruit is used as a metaphor in the New Testament, it's always a metaphor for character. It's always a metaphor for the kind of person you become, not for accomplishment. Galatians 5 is a great example. It says, the fruit of the Spirit is. So in other words, if the Holy Spirit lives in you, which he does if you're a believer in Jesus, then it will, there will be evidence that comes out, right? The evidence, the same way you know you've got a peach tree in your backyard because all of a sudden there are peaches hanging off of it. You know that someone's got the Holy Spirit because they give evidence of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is what? It doesn't say it's high IQ and winning elections and being irresistible to the opposite sex and making six figures a year. No, it says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And none of that will get you on a magazine cover, and none of that will get you uh, billions of dollars. And yet, that's true success, to become that person who more and more every single day starts to look and act like Jesus Christ. Because that's what the world's thirsting for. Now, don't get me wrong. That does not mean that it's wrong to achieve things. That doesn't mean that if you go off to college and get a degree that you failed God because that's an earthly accomplishment. This doesn't mean that it's more righteous to work a minimum wage job than to make a living wage. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't play sports and try your best. No, none of that. Don't, don't, don't mishear what I'm saying. But you have to be honest with yourself about what is my true goal in life. Ted Williams was one of the greatest baseball players ever. He's in the Hall of Fame today. He was famous for saying, outfielder for the Boston Red Sox, 30s and 40s, he was famous for saying, my dream is that someday when I walk down the street, people will say, there goes Ted Williams, the greatest hitter who ever played the game. And some people would say he succeeded. He studied hitting as an art, as a science, He's the last person to ever bat 400 for an entire season, 1941, and yet his team never won the World Series. What good is it to be the best at what you do if you don't help others accomplish a goal? Besides that, he was famously a difficult person to be around. Fans didn't like him. His teammates didn't like him. He couldn't, he, he couldn't maintain a marriage. He was just a difficult guy. What good is it to be the best at what you do if you drive away everyone who ever tried to love you? See, it's not about, oh, well, failures are more righteous than successes. That's not what it means. But what it does mean is if your ultimate goal is to be the best at your dream job, then you're going to warp your soul. You're going to destroy your relationships along the way to your version of success. But if your ultimate goal is to be like Jesus, guess what? You are guaranteed to succeed because you have the power of Almighty God working toward that goal. And all he's looking for is for you to participate alongside him 
You can still be great at other things. In fact, I believe the person whose desire is to glorify God will use their innate talents and abilities better than anybody else on earth. And so there might be somebody here in this room that says, I've got a good scientific mind. I want to use it to be the best researcher on earth so I can find a cure for ALS or or AIDS or, or cancer or Alzheimer's, and I'm going to give glory to God for it. Or maybe somebody else in this room says, I'm good at making money and managing people and, and working towards a goal, so I want to start a business that I, that I can employ lots of people in my community, and I can show them what a Christian boss is really like and treat them with with fairness and integrity and along the way make an impact on my community. Or maybe somebody here who says, I work for an air conditioning company. I want to be the best tech in my company so that my boss, when he thinks about who am I going to hire next, says, I want to hire somebody who loves Jesus like this guy does, because that apparently produces a good work ethic. And by the way, when my neighbors who can't afford AC help, when their furnace breaks down or when their AC is, is gone kaput in the middle of summer, I can go into their attic and I can fix everything and not charge them a dime because I'm doing this for the Lord. Or maybe there's somebody here today who says, I want to be the best math teacher anybody's ever taken so that someday kids will look back, adult children will look back and say, the reason I love math, I always hated it before, is because I took Ms. So-and-so's class And she was a Christian, and she taught me to love something as evil as algebra. (laughs) See, you can do amazing things and make a a powerful impact on this world, but ultimately your success is not in what you do, it's in who you become. So how do we get there? How do we achieve that kind of success? The world would say, sacrifice everything, refuse to take no for an answer, dab on the haters, run over your grandma to get what you want. You like that? Yeah. (laughs) So how do you get there? Jesus says, no. This is what I do in you. First of all, it, it, it comes down to submit to God's pruning. Remember a few weeks ago when all of a sudden we had winter? Just all of a sudden, you know, it's typical Texas, February, and then winter, you know, and, and it just blew us all away, literally. And, and like my family had planted, bought and planted these very expensive trees that were supposed to give us this natural barrier from our neighbors. Not that we don't like our neighbors, but you know how it is. You want a little privacy. And these trees were beautiful. And then snowpocalypse hit, and they became these brown twigs. And y'all know what I'm talking about. You had the same thing in your yard, unless you made the deal with the devil, and I don't want to hear about it. But so, so the next week, my daughter and I, my daughter loves gardening, so we went out and we'd read online, okay, if it's dead, chop it off. Well, I'm good at that. I mean, you give me a blade and some stuff to destroy, I can, I can do work. And so we went around chopping off the dead stuff. Why? Well, because if there's any life left in that plant, you don't want it wasting its energy trying to pump life into dead branches. You get the dead out of the way so that new life can form. But some of you are master gardeners. You haven't just read something online. Some of you have taken classes. Some of you have experience. And so you know what it is to go to a tree that doesn't look dead at all, that looks perfectly healthy and say, you know what, if I remove two-thirds of what I see, something good is going to come out of it because I know where to cut. I know what to remove. And that's God. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a theology out there that says that God pulls the strings on every event that happens. And therefore, if tomorrow you hear that you're beloved uncle has passed away. You say, okay, the Lord has done this to me. I don't think that's how life works. 
I don't think that's how God operates. And I'll prove it to you. If I got accused of a crime I didn't commit and put in jail unjustly, would that be the will of God? No, God doesn't ordain lies. If someone drove drunk and ran into your car and crippled you, is that God's will? No, God didn't cause that person to drink too much and get behind the wheel of a car. God doesn't ordain sin. I believe there are lots of things that happen in this world that are not God's express will. So what do I mean? What do I mean when I say God prunes us? Here's what I mean. Everybody who ever lives on this earth experiences pain without exception, no matter what age, stage of life, class, income. But if you are apart from the vine that is Jesus Christ, if you're living life out on your own, your pain is random. It's meaningless. It is irredeemable. But if you're in the vine, you know that God says, I can take what ever the world does to you, the worst this world throws at you. And in my wisdom and power, I can weave it into my divine plan for your life so that there is redemption at the end of it. So that someday you can look back and say, okay, I'm not exactly glad that happened, but I rejoice at what God did along the way. So when I say submit to God's pruning, what I mean is not, oh, hallelujah, I'm suffering. And I'm not saying that it's wrong to weep. And I'm not saying that you're a bad person if you cry out to God and say, God, I don't understand this. How can this happen? Or even if you're angry with him, read the Psalms sometimes. That kind of emotion is all through the Psalms. What I am saying is you don't stay on the bottom. In the midst of your suffering, in your mind and your heart, you say, God, I'm thankful to know that you weep alongside of me, that you suffer with me, and I am thankful to know that somehow you are going to redeem this. I don't know how, but I trust in you. And you let those sufferings draw you closer to your Savior, not push you further away. There's an African Christian some years ago who came to this country and, and went on a speaking tour of different churches. And after he'd been here for quite some time, someone asked him, what do you think of us American Christians? And he was very kind and, and gracious in his comments. But he said, one thing I know I, I'd really like to see you change. He said, in, in America, you seem to pray that God would take the, the burden of suffering off of your backs. But in Africa, we pray for stronger backs to bear the burden of suffering. And I think that makes us better. He's not right about every American Christian, though. Some of you are familiar with a guy named John Piper. He's a, a pastor up in Minnesota, author. Um, some years ago, I saw he wrote an article online. And the title was very catchy. It said, don't let me waste my cancer. And that's how I found out that John Piper had been diagnosed with cancer. He ended up overcoming it thank God. But at the time he didn't know. And the point of the article was it was a prayer to God saying, Lord, I don't know what tomorrow holds or the next day or the next year or the next week, but whatever happens, help me to not miss what you're going to do through this time. Whether I live or die, no matter how much I suffer, I know you're going to bring about redemption. So don't let me miss it. Don't let me be so caught up in self-pity or anger or fear that I miss what you're doing in me. That's what it means to submit to God's pruning. And secondly, and most importantly, if we want to succeed, we have to abide in Christ. Now, that's a word that may be unfamiliar to you. You may not have used that word this week. It simply means to remain. And some would look at it and say, oh, so all I have to do is just stick with Jesus, not walk away, and I'll grow. 
Because after all, we, we know that we can't grow ourselves any more than a child can just consciously choose to grow. I, you know, if, if that was possible, I'd be at least 6'2". <laughs> yes, God is the one who brings about the growth. But it doesn't mean we're passive. The scriptures tell us the opposite. In fact, others would say to abide in Christ means to be in church on Sundays and to pray diligently and to fast and to tithe and to study the word of God. And yes, all those things are good to do and they do produce growth. But can we be honest since we're in church? Can we be honest and say some of the most religious Christians you've ever met aren't anything like Jesus? I mean, haven't we all known, don't look around the room, don't look at anybody specific, but don't you, don't you know or haven't you in the past known people who, when someone asks you, well, what's she like? Oh, wow, she's really religious. Oh, so you like her? No, not really. Oh, I, I, I sure respect her. I wouldn't want to be in a car with her. That'd be miserable. She's a joy sucker, right? He's, he's a, a complainer. He's a critic. He's a racist. He's a fool. So yeah, you can be religious and not be like Jesus. So what does it mean to abide? To abide in Christ, if you go on to verse 10, he still taught, a lot of people stop at verse five, which I did, but when you go on to verse 10, he's still talking about abiding in the vine. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So in other words, abiding in Christ means being obedient to what Jesus says, but he's not done. Two verses later, verse 12, he says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So that's what it comes down to. See, I'm an American pastor in the 21st century, not a Hebrew pastor in the first century. So my main point is now here at the end of my message. And that is this, to abide in Christ more than anything else is to seek to love the Lord and to love others. That's what it comes down to. In other words, Here's your sermon in a sentence. The key to becoming successful in life is to pray again and again, Lord, teach me to love others like you love me. Because as we said at the beginning of the year in our, our sermon series on this topic, love doesn't come naturally to any of us. We don't come out of the womb naturally loving. We come out of the womb saying two words, mine and no, right? We have to learn how to love others because love is not emotion. Love is action. Love is not sentiment. Love is decision. You can love someone who you don't even really like because you choose to put their needs ahead of your own, because you treat them in a way that you would want to be treated if you were in their shoes. And again, that doesn't come naturally to us. That's why I say, if you want to be successful in life, you pray that every day. Lord, change my heart. Make me a person who loves others like you love me. And then you go out and look for opportunities to do it. And you run across people who have less than you and you find ways to be generous to them. And you come across people who are struggling and you say, how can I be, encourage you? How can I walk alongside of you and let you know that life is still worth living? And you reconcile with people who've hurt you and you forgive people who've done things that seem unforgivable. And, and you act as a peacemaker in, in situations where people aren't getting along with each other. And you invest in relationships. That's what our church is all about. I think the greatest resource this church has is not the building or the staff or its history. The greatest resource this church has is sitting in the pews right now. That is the people in this room and the people in those other two services and the people who couldn't be here today because the Holy Spirit of God is in you and you go out into your community and you bump into people who are struggling and they meet you and they think, 
gosh, I didn't know Christians could be like this. I just assumed they were hypocrites and judgmental bigots. But I met you, and it changed my whole perspective. Man, I wouldn't know what to do if I hadn't met you. You changed everything for me. That's what it means to abide in Christ, and that's the fruit that gets produced, that fruit of the Spirit that changes the lives of everyone around you. And let me just close with this. I'm sure there are people either sitting here or watching online who would say, you know, Jeff, to be honest, I don't really think about being successful. I've kind of gotten to the point where all those youthful dreams are gone, and I just want to be happy. Isn't that enough? I'll let these more ambitious people shoot for success, and can't I just, you know, play my golf or, 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 or go out fishing or, or, you know, hang out with the people I love? And then there are other people who would say, no, no, I am that young, ambitious person, that driven person who wants to change the world. And honestly, Jeff, I, I'll look to be successful in the eyes of God someday, but for now, let me chase my dream. And to both of those people, I think Jesus would say, listen, I love you, and, and I, I created you. I created the universe. Can you trust me that I know more about life than you? And I say, what you're proposing does not work. It sounds logical in your head, but it doesn't work in real life. You're going to be miserable, cut off from the vine. You're going to die. And remember, he didn't just say it. He died for it. You see, you and I, we're the, we're the dead branches broken off of a dead tree. And Jesus has worked this incredible miracle by grafting us into the living vine against all nature. And now we've got life. And it cost him his own life to do that. And if the smartest person who ever lived, the most successful person who ever lived, died to make that possible for you, why would you settle for anything less?